All right, y'all. Welcome back to another podcast episode. I have been promising this for quite some time, and I just was looking for the right person. We are going to talk to a speech-language pathologist today to talk all things speech-language therapy. But what makes this in particular unique is the approach and the focus. So we're going to talk about gestalt language processing today and using NLA, natural language acquisition, as well as touch on AAC devices. So I'm so excited to have, you might have come across her Instagram account, Boho Speechy, and I'm just so excited to have Katia Piscatelli here on the podcast. So Katia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast, and I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent, supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So tell us a little bit of background about you. How did you get into the speech therapy world? I've been in the field for a little over three years now, so still relatively new, but prior to speech therapy, I worked as a behavior tech in an ABA company, and I loved the job, but didn't feel super aligned with a lot of the strategies. And then I discovered speech therapy through seeing my kids in their sessions. And I knew that's what I wanted to pursue. So we went to grad school and here we are. Awesome. And when you went through your graduate level training, did they talk about Gestalt language processing or was this more after the fact you discovered it? Yeah, no, there was no mention of it. About a few months after I graduated, I was working in a special day class, so lots of autistic children, and I discovered Gestalt language through an account on Instagram called Meaningful Speech. Alex, who leads the account, was really the first person to bring this info to Instagram and Instantly, it was everything that I had been missing in supporting these kids. So it was a huge light bulb moment for me. And I know for a lot of other professionals and parents that find it, it's a big light bulb as well. And I just ran with it from there, took her course and took every bit of info that I could find about it and made it my specialty. And yeah, it's been such a game changer for my career and my students. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're going to dive into some of the differences of what this looks like. But I think that's really common. And I hear this all the time of people still not knowing what Gestalt language processing is. So if this is your first introduction, I'm so excited you're here to learn about it. If you've been researching, 
and trying to figure out, is your child a Gestalt language processor? We'll be diving into that as well and what you can do about it. We've mentioned the term a bunch of times already. Let's define Gestalt language processing and also then compare it to analytic language processing and how they differ. So as you mentioned, two ways to develop language, analytic processing and Gestalt processing. Both are natural and very common, but less people know about Gestalt language processors, less speech therapists are aware of it. So it often goes unfound, but it's not a diagnosis. It's not a disorder. It's just a natural way that a lot of kids process language. Analytic processing, which is the sort of opposing style, is what we often see as typical language development. Kids learn single words. And then once they have enough single words in their repertoire, they start to combine them into two word phrases and then add another word and create three word phrases and so on until they're producing grammar. With Gestalt processors, it's a bit opposite process. They start with these chunks of language or Gestalts. Many parents of autistic kids might have might be familiar with the term scripting or delayed echolalia. It's all one and the same. Gestalts are delayed echolalia. So these chunks of language that are repeated from someone else or from somewhere else, perhaps a character, a show, a song, but these gestalts or scripts or delayed echolalia are really the first piece of language acquisition for gestalt processors. And then once they have enough of those, they will naturally go to breaking them down pulling out the single word pieces. And then from there, they can build grammar with those single words that they've pulled out of gestalts, but they really have to start at that gestalt level, that chunk um, of language levels. Quite a different process than our analytic processors go through. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, when I first learned about this, I actually have a patient who has delayed language right now. And I just started doing lots and lots of research. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know so many kids that are like this. And most of the kids that I see are already identified as autistic or parents are presenting with concerns, but I am seeing it left and right now. So how common do you feel like Gestalt language processing is? The research shows that at least 85% of autistic kids are Gestalt language processors, autistic people. So it's very common in that community, but it's very common for non-autistic kids as well. It's just with non-autistic kids, they often move through the language acquisition stages so quickly that they're not even identified as learning language any differently than any other kid. It's very common for non-autistic and autistic kids, but most autistic kids are Gestalt language processors. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's so interesting. We see, and I talk a lot about on this podcast, this shift from the medical models definition of autism to then more of that neurodiversity perspective. And yeah, for so long we were just, and it is echolalia, but we were also just saying this is an autism symptom. I was always of the mindset before I even learned about Gestalt language processing, we're going to respond to any sort of communication bids and reinforce those. But I also think in some more 
outdated models that sometimes we want to ignore these scripts and ignore kind of these bids. So talk a little bit, because I know NLA doesn't do that, but talk about NLA and what some of the approaches there are. So NLA stands for Natural Language Acquisition, and this is really just a term that describes the process that these kids naturally move through. Some need assistance to move through, but the natural language acquisition stages are the um, stages of language acquisition that Gestalt processors move through. It's not a treatment method, but there are methods that we use to assist kids in moving through those stages. And generally, those methods are very much child-led, affirming everything that the child is saying. So yeah, there's definitely strategies that go along with moving kids through that process. And it really depends on what stage of the process they're in. I think it'd be helpful for parents if we could break down the different stages because I think it can help them recognize patterns. And yeah, if we can go through each of those stages and then maybe some examples that you're commonly hearing in each of those. So stage one can present really differently. It depends how much language your child has because non-speaking kids can be Gestalt language processors as well. So it might not sound like much of anything, but the classic stage one is kids who are using delayed echolalia from media sources. So maybe they're scripting from their favorite shows or movies or characters or songs. So kids that are producing long strings of language, but stage one is all about delayed echolalia. In this stage, kids are saying chunks of language that they're repeating elsewhere, but it's not always a super long thing. It could be a single word that they're repeating that they've heard someone else um, model. It could be a shorter phrase. It can be as long as a whole movie or as short as a word, but the idea is that these kids are using delayed echolalia. So it's not their own grammar. Everything that they're saying has is a direct imitation of something that they've heard before, maybe a few minutes ago, maybe months ago. Um, but it's all about delayed echolalia in stage one. And then sometimes too, this delayed echolalia or the scripting can be unintelligible where parents can't understand it as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes, a lot of the time, stage one sounds like jargon, like your child is just experimenting with their voice or producing these long strings of words that you can't understand. But the difference is that it's not just jargon. They're not just playing with sounds. They are trying to produce a gestalt or a script. It's just difficult for them to coordinate. Um, so it doesn't sound very clear, but often if we really listen to it, it's repetitive. So even if it's going to be da 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 like over and over again, it's the same intonation because Gestalt language processors really pick up on the intonation of language. So they're probably getting that even if they're not clearly producing every single word, but that is something to pay attention to as well. If you can 
make out a couple words or make out the rhythm and figure out what song or what line from a show they are producing, then you can better understand perhaps what your child is trying to communicate to you in that moment, because it probably is meaningful. It can just be a little tricky to figure out that meaning. Yeah. But yeah, that's a common thing we see in stage one as well. Okay. And then I'm curious, how do you support stage one. If you're noticing your child's in stage one, what should you be, what should parents be doing? In addition, obviously the ideal is to get them in speech therapy with someone who is familiar with gestalt language processing, but what are some of those things parents can do at home? Yeah. And it's the same thing they're going to do in speech therapy with someone who is trained to support this process. So there's three big things. One, just affirm what you're hearing, even if it is unintelligible, you don't know what your child's saying, repeating back the rhythm, just acknowledging, yeah, I hear you, um, but trying to affirm everything they're saying. So whether it's intelligible or not, just repeating it back, that's going to build language trust and just help them to understand that they are communicating something and it's important to you whether or not it's clear yet. And then the second piece is doing this um, detective work, doing the work to figure out what these gestalts do mean. So maybe your child is saying something clear, but you're not quite sure what they're truly trying to communicate with it. Um, With gestalts or scripting, it's often not um, clear at surface level what the true meaning is. So we often have to look deeper. For example, I have a child who says, baby dear, And that's a gestalt that she uses to express that she's feeling sick. Hmm. And it took us a while to figure that out because it's totally not what you would see at surface level. We were, parents were buying her dear stuffed animal, taking her to the zoo, showing her videos. And it wasn't what she was trying to communicate. But then mom remembered that one day she stayed home sick and watched Bambi on repeat. So that... Baby deer gestalt is really encompassing that whole feeling that she had when she was homesick watching Bambi. So now she uses that to express that she's sick. And this is often what gestalts do. They really encompass a whole emotion or time and place where they were picked up. So we really have to do that work to really understand our kids. And then from there, you can help them to maybe express that idea a bit more clearly. You can model for them. I'm sick. I don't feel good. And perhaps they will pick that up as a gestalt as well. But yes, these gestalts are really tied to something deeper. So really thinking about where your child first picked it up, what was happening, what maybe what was the emotion in the video that they learned the gestalt from, and then going from there. Yeah. And then the third piece is just getting them more gestalts. Kids in stage one don't need more single words. In fact, they don't yet know that they can use single words and build grammar with them. So those single word pieces often just become stuck. They're just there, but they don't know what to do with them yet. So a lot of stage one kids will just have a ton of single word labels. Maybe your child can label all the colors and shapes and items in their home, but they're not producing anything conversational. It's because these kids at this stage need more gestalts or um, chunks of language. They will get to the using single word piece 
later. So providing them that is not helpful, but providing them gestalts and building up their repertoire of gestalts or phrase level stuff will help them to start moving through the stages. Once they have enough of that, they will move to the second stage and start breaking them down. So we really want to give them phrases. And I just recommend modeling in their words. So put yourself in the child's shoes and think about what would my child want to say in this moment and then model it at the phrase level. So maybe if I'm at the dinner table with my child, I might model, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, time to eat, I like it, it's yummy. All of these phrase level things, if they picked up and imitated, because these kids are using delayed echolalia at this point, so they're going to imitate exactly what you give them, it will make sense for them, and they can use it to express ideas and then build up their repertoire of these gestalts, which will serve them in the later stages. So yeah, those are the three biggest things in this stage, really affirming everything you hear, doing that detective work, and then building up their repertoire of gestalts. Awesome. Yeah. What do you think about, for example, different toys that produce gestalts themselves? What are your thoughts on that? You know how there's books where it says, the cow says moo, the pig says oink, oink. What are your thoughts on exposing kids to more of those electronic-based toys? Yeah, a lot of Gestalt processors pick up on them because they really pick up on things that are rich in emotion and intonation, things that sound really interesting to the ear. But I would say a lot of these, so they're not going to hurt, but they might not become something that's really super usable for them because that's another piece that we want to think about is when we're modeling gestalt, we want to model something that's going to be easy to break down in the next stage, in stage two. Mm -hmm. Something like to infinity and beyond. It's not super easy to break down in the next stage. And by that, I mean, like switching out a word or two to create something slightly different, where something like it's time to play would be an easy one to break down in stage two. We could make it, it's time to eat. It's time to go. So changing out that last word, Mm. that's really the ultimate goal in stage two is to start mixing and matching and showing that we can be a bit more flexible with these scripts or gestalts. So the things that these toys model might not be all that mix and matchable or mitigable as we say in stage two. But your child probably will enjoy them. Um, but from that, we can take a lesson about what when we're modeling, really trying to model with intensity, with a lot of emotion, make your language really rich in intonation. That's likely what your child is going to pick up. So if you notice you're modeling gestalts, but your child isn't really imitating you, isn't picking them up and using them later, try to really think about making them sound super interesting and exciting. And then you might notice a shift. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. That's neat to think about. Okay. The last thing about stage one before we move to stage two, because I get this question a lot. So I'm curious your perspective is how do I know if my child is a gestalt language processor if they're non-speaking? Yeah. Yeah. So there's different things we can pay attention to. Um, 
in regards to how they're accessing their environment. So Gestalt language processors are also Gestalt cognitive processors. So they, they have episodic memory. So they really see things as a whole that they want to repeat. Um, so you might notice that they play that way. Perhaps they repeat the same play scheme every time, or they want an activity to look the same way every time, which we see as a common autistic trait, but it's really linked to this episodic memory that Gestalt processors have. We can also look at their media access. A lot of Gestalt processors will replay certain parts of a video over and over, which again is something that most autistic kids do. Because most autistic kids are gestalt processors. This is how they like see the world and access things. And they might be trying to communicate something with that piece that they're replaying, or it might just sound good to their ear, but it's a common thing that we see. And then we can look at their AAC use. If they're an AAC user, a lot of gestalt processors won't make expected progress with AAC. And it's because it's really set up to support analytic processors. It is word by word. It's lots of single words. If they're not at the stage, stage three and beyond, which we haven't touched on yet, but if they're not at that stage where they can see those single words as building blocks for language, they might learn some single words, but it's not really going to go beyond that to become super successful. So a lot of non-speaking Gestalt language processors won't make super great progress with AAC. So that's something to pay attention to. And there's ways that we can make AAC fit them better. Because it's definitely something they need. It just might need to be tailored to their learning style. But mm-hmm. And then we can kind of just assume if they're an autistic non-speaker that they're probably a Gestalt processor because it's so common. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know I said that was the last thing before stage two, but let's dive into AAC really quick. Who do you recommend AAC for? And then also touch on how do we modify it then for Gestalt language processors to be effective? Yeah, I recommend it to almost all of my students, speaking and non-speaking. From learning from autistic adults, so many of them benefit from AAC, even when they are fully speaking and can most of the time say anything they want and express any ideas they have. But when under stress or something similar, they might lose access to speech and need that AAC. So it really can never hurt. And I'm thinking about setting these kids up for long-term success. So I suggest it to pretty much everyone, but definitely if there's communication breakdowns, maybe they can make requests, but they can't share ideas or like fully express themselves with the language they have yet, then AAC can help bridge that gap definitely for any kids who are non or minimally speaking. So um, maybe your child has a lot of single word labels again, but they can't really express beyond that. It's going to help bridge the gap. Is that something you're introducing pretty quickly? Yeah, the earliest I've started with is two, but that's just because I don't really work with kids that are younger than that, but it's never too early. Yeah, it's never too early. And the sooner you introduce it, the more time they're going to have to really master it because it does take time. It can take quite a bit of time. So might as well start soon and really expose them to it. And 
the power of it sooner rather than later. But yeah, always recommending it to toddlers. And it's often something that parents didn't think about or didn't think they were ready for. But it's amazing how fast these kids can pick it up and how well these young kids can use it. Some of my toddlers know how to access it better than me pretty quickly. Yeah. And we have a previous episode with Erin from Spins and Stomps where we talk about her daughter using AAC. She's also a Gestalt language processor. So that could be a great episode to reference back to. But Katia, I definitely, and I, I will own this, right, because of my training, for so long, and I still hear this all the time, like there's this concern that AAC will somehow inhibit spoken communication. I've definitely shifted strongly my perspective on this after like really learning. But do you find that a lot? There's this old school mentality of being like, we need to wait. What is this going to stop them from communicating? Is that, are you finding that a lot still? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Yeah, and I more so hear it from parents. That's always their biggest fear is every parent wants their child to talk. So they're scared that they're then going to rely on this and not talk. I always explain a few things. One, that kids are going to use the easiest method of communication. Right now, that might be AAC, but talking, if they're able to, is so much easier than AAC. It's faster. It's much easier to access. It gets their point across easier. If they get to the point where they can access speech, they're going to choose that. That's a cool point. I've never heard that actually before. So that's really fascinating and makes so much sense. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents assume that maybe their child's being stubborn or we really have to encourage them to to speak or they're not going to, but it's really, they're not choosing the easy way out by choosing AAC. It's likely that speaking is super hard for them. Maybe there's a motor planning difficulty, apraxia, whatever it may be. But yeah, if they're not talking, it's because it's really hard to access that language, likely. But beyond that, I just try to express that every parent wants their child to talk, but more than anything, we want them to communicate. So giving them a means of communication is so much more important than hearing mouth words. And yeah, I think once parents see that communication happening, then they do realize that it's rewarding and really powerful for their child. Totally. But yeah, it's a common thing that I hear. I often think of it as another tool in the toolkit of them being able to communicate and with neurodiversity, it's so important to recognize all forms of communication equally. And so this is another way for them to be able to communicate. But I will say I have families I'm working with that I'm actually the one proposing AAC and that sometimes 
speech, there are some speech therapists that are still hesitant, especially in the toddler years. I had a conversation the other day with a parent in a consult call and it was like, yeah, I tried bringing up AAC and I really trust my speech therapist. And so when she said no, it was like, okay. And talking about that can be good to circle back around to, especially I find if we're identifying Gestalt language processing, which again is the the most common. So I guess, yeah, how in terms of adapting the AAC device, do, any suggestions you have there? Yeah, the biggest adaptations come in stage one and two because these kids are using Gestalt, not these single words that are programmed into the device. So it can be helpful to program in Gestalt into the device. So more phrase level or chunk language, one phrase per button. So you could create a folder that has these target Gestalts programmed in, or you can sprinkle them into related categories. Maybe on the food page you have, I'm hungry, time to eat, it's yummy, it's yucky, I like it. So putting some of these related Gestalts into each category, but either way, having these Gestalts available. So you can really start there because if your child is a Gestalt processor, they're likely going to access those first before these single words. But we don't want to change anything on the device. I don't recommend removing anything or really changing up the system at all, just adding because our goal is that eventually they will use it to access these single words and build with these single words and AAC devices do a good job of setting it up for grammar production once they're at that point. So we want to keep it there and get them to that point eventually. Yeah. And any go-to recommendations that you have? I've seen you say on your page, and I'm also familiar with it, the TD Snap app, but other ones that, especially if a parent wants to start exploring, maybe they're working with the speech therapist or they're not, where are some places you recommend starting? Yeah. Yeah. As far as apps go, I recommend TD Snap a lot just because it's very robust and awesome, but it's the most affordable, robust option. And a lot of parents on my page are trying to do it themselves and purchase it themselves. So I recommend that one a lot. But I think if you're going through insurance or money is not an issue, touch chat with word power is probably my favorite for Gestalt processors just because it has a lot of features that support Gestalt language processors, you can record speech, which can be really important for these kids. Like I mentioned a few times, they're intonation kids. They love when language is really interesting. So being able to record your voice or a script from a video um, versus the computer generated voice can be really helpful. In TouchDot, you can input and like link to video clips. There's a whiteboard app, which a lot of Gestalt processors like. Yeah, different features like that. So TouchChat is great. And then Prolico to go is also a favorite. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Anything else about AAC? And then we really are going to transition to the other stages and all of that. And I think we have a better foundation of what Gestalt is. So hopefully we'll be able to move through the other stages more quickly because I know I've asked you a million questions. But anything else on AAC before we transition away? Yeah, I would say that at this point, we're just experimenting to see what works for these kids. There's no research directly on the interlap of Gestalt language and AAC. 
though I will say a lot of the AAC research is done on autistic people and autistic kids are gestalt processors. So there really is already that research, but it just wasn't directly looked at that at, at the way that they acquire language, that gestalt piece. But so we're all just experimenting and seeing what works for our kids. But if you're trying to learn more about the overlap, Meaningful Speech account that I mentioned does have an AAC course. So that could be something to look into. It's totally all about the overlap between AAC and gestalt language. But yeah, beyond that, there's lots of finer detailed things we could chat oh, about. We could be but- here. For hours and we don't have that, but yeah. Yeah. But I think meaningful speech and then your account, like coming and learning directly from you, you post so much. So we'll make sure to link both of those. I also think just since we're talking about meaningful speech also has a directory where you can find therapists that are trained in NLA. So they know about Gestalt language processing. Um, Two things that real quick came to mind for me if we can briefly touch on, is one, this concept of modeling with ex- without expectation that this is going to take time to expose your child to. They're not going to like all of a sudden start using the device. And then also like stimming on the device, pushing a button over and over. Can you just comment on those two things real quick before we pivot? Yeah. Whether we're modeling verbally or remodeling on an AAC device with Gestalt processors and with any kids. We want to be modeling without expectation, which basically means we're we're modeling as an offer, like maybe this is what you're wanting to say, but we're not expecting them to imitate. We're not expecting them to use the device or imitate our words. We're just giving that model as an offering and seeing what they do with it. That's really what we do for AAC teaching. We're not really teaching them how to use it. We're just showing them how they could use it. And eventually they will likely pick that up. I just recommend to parents to use it as their own voice. So you talk with the device and your child will then learn that they can use it to talk as well. Yeah. And then simming with the device. Sometimes it is stimming. Maybe your child is pushing the same button over and over again because they really like the sound of it and it does sound pleasing to their ear. But a lot of the times I will hear someone dismiss AAC for a new user because they're just stimming on it, but really they're exploring. It's a new language system. So they really need time to just play around, touch all the buttons and see what it's all about. It's like babbling. Mm -hmm. We don't expect babies to be able to talk right away first they really take it all in they get models consistently for a year then they start to play around with it so it's the same thing with AAC we really gotta let them have that babbling stage and have that stage where they're just receiving the language input and not expected to um, give output but oftentimes I'll see kids that seem like they're just playing around with it and then a few weeks go by and they know where the icons are better than me. So sometimes it's just, it really is exploration and it's more meaningful than it looks. I definitely recommend giving kids that time and really encouraging it. Um, 
I love the idea of reframing too, as a parent of it's easy to be like, oh, they're just stimming. And maybe they are, and that's regulatory and we want to permit access to that. But I love this idea of thinking of it as them babbling, right? They're just babbling. They're playing, Mm -hmm. they're playing around, they're exploring just like they play around with spoken language in the same way. So I think that's such a cool idea. And I also know in the Spins and Stomps episode with Erin, she mentioned it took her daughter a couple months before her daughter Riley ever started using it. And so don't be surprised if it takes your child a couple months. Yeah. And it can be tricky for parents. It definitely is overwhelming Mm -hmm. to be constantly modeling on this device, like truly the more the better. And if you're not seeing what's been weeks and your child still not initiating use of it, it can be a bit discouraging. But yes, it often takes yeah. months of you just using it before they're even interested in really trying it at all. But they're probably paying more attention than you think. But yeah, it can be tedious and it does take some good work, but it becomes more and more natural and ingrained in you over time. I love that you validate that that parent experience too. Like it is normal to feel frustrated with it and it is overwhelming and all of that. And I always say create space for those emotions because they are absolutely yeah. valid. Let's move finally into stage two. What is stage two? Yeah. So now your child has a big repertoire of gestalts and we really want to focus on giving them a variety of gestalt. So not just things to make requests, but gestalts to comment. I like it. It's cool. Gestalts to protest. I don't like it. Go away. Gestalts to make suggestions. It's time for or let's. But once they have a big variety and um, a big amount of gestalts, they will likely naturally start moving into stage two, which is mixing and matching of these gestalts or breaking down of these gestalts a bit. So they become quite a bit more flexible in their language. And at this stage, it can sound like pretty on topic, pretty relevant. It can be pretty amazing what your child will produce. And oftentimes I will get confusion from parents because it does sound like their own language. They definitely created that it has to be because it's totally what we're doing right now. Maybe they're talking about the train set that we're playing with, but oftentimes it really is just really good mixing and matching of these pieces. And there's a different, there's a few different ways that mixing and matching can look. It could look like changing out the first word or the last word of the phrase. And I gave an example of that before. It's time to play could become it's time to dance. It's time to eat. So they're changing out that verb. Or it could look like mixing and matching chunks. So maybe it's time to play and I like pizza could combine to I like to play. So they took a chunk from this one and a chunk from this one and created a new idea. Or it could look like whittling down of a larger gestalt. So maybe it's time to go eat pizza. Now they're just saying go eat pizza. So there's three different ways that we can produce these mitigations or these changes to these original gestalts. But that's what stage two looks like. And really supporting kids here is just about helping them to make these mitigations. So maybe you take something that was a stage one gestalt and you show them how they can change it up a little bit. 
a lot of it is pretty independent on their own and you're just affirming them and being along for the ride. But yeah, the more you can play along with them, um, the better. So is it an indication that they're starting to move to stage two or is this still stage one where say they have the gestalt and there's like a word that's a label in it? I don't know. I like my dog. And then they're saying dog independently. Is that a, is dog itself a gestalt or are they starting to move into stage two or does it not matter? Maybe I, my, my analytical brain is thinking more about this than necessary. Yeah. If they pull dog out of that greater gestalt, then it might be more of a stage three, a really, because oh, right. when it's truly an isolated stage word, three, yeah. then it's a stage yeah. three. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to really know how they're seeing that word because there are lots of single word gestalts. If someone modeled dog and they were, and that child is mainly in stage one and they picked that word up, then it might just be a gestalt, a stage one and they're not seeing it as a building block, but if they really did isolate it, they might be. And sometimes, frequently this happens, kids aren't like solely in stage one and then solely in stage two and then three. They're often a bit all over the place. So you might hear some pop-outs of stage threes, some truly isolated single words. You might hear them produce some of their own grammar while they're still acquiring gestalt. So it often is a bit all over okay, the place. So fluid. This yeah. stage three then. Yeah, so that's when they start to truly isolate these single words and then start to play with two-word combinations. So it sounds a lot more like analytic language toddlers, like we would see as typical toddler language. Mommy up, mommy shoes. So really pulling out nouns, descriptive words, and location words, and then playing with them in different combinations. So it's not grammar yet, but it's really building the foundation for that. Because um, the more single words they pull out, the more building blocks they're going to have to use when they do get to that next grammar stage, that stage four. Yeah, we're really just helping them to pull out these single words and experiment with them. Um, it's like a game of I spy almost. So really just referencing different things that you see and describing them and playing around with that. And it's really the first time that these kids are very referential. So if your child has never pointed and now all of a sudden they're pointing to things and labeling them, that's a very good sign that they are in stage three. Wow, so cool. it's a very big switch in the brain at this point. Yeah. That is so cool to think about. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So here's a question. And this is a question I'm personally wondering, but I, in case parents are hearing this terminology as well. So I've heard the terminology like dual language processor. So my question now is, and I have a kiddo that I'm seeing two and a half that reminds me of this, definitely has some gestalts, also has some single words. Is that is there a difference between a dual language processor or a kid that just has some stage one and stage three? Yeah, there is a difference. And I, it's tricky to identify because maybe they have a lot of gestalts and single words, but these single words are really just stage one gestalts. Okay. Yeah, it's a tricky thing to identify. And I wouldn't say that it's uncommon. There's just not enough research or documentation about 
these kids and how it really presents. But the general consensus is if we support them as a gestalt processor, that's going to work. It's not going to hurt them. But just keep affirming everything that they're saying. And I don't think it's going to hurt them to also model these single words and join them there as well. Yeah, but I know Meaningful Speech will share, like, by the time kids are school age, they're either one or the other. And I don't know that it's necessarily that. It's, I think, more so that they have just moved through the language development stages at that point. But but yeah, it's a tricky um, thing to really identify accurately. And I wouldn't get too caught up in that. But if you have a dual processor or you suspect you do and you're curious, Marge Blanc, who has done like all of the work in this area, really like was the person who labeled the natural language acquisition stages. She has a Facebook group that discusses it a little bit more in depth, but yeah, it's a tricky thing. Okay. And then one other question that I'm also curious about. So in terms of single words being gestalts versus like they're moving into stage three, if you see a kid, here's what I'm thinking, but you have to tell me if this is accurate or not, because I can't think of how to like accurately phrase this in or effectively phrase this into a question. So if a kid, for example, is labeling something always in the same way, like dog, for example, and it's just petting the dog and every time it's like dog, I would assume that's like more a gestalt in stage one. I guess what I'm wondering, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, is if they're starting then to use dog in a bunch of different contexts. They say it to their dog. They say it to one in a picture. They say it out on a walk. Is that potentially moving more into stage three or hard to say? Yeah. And they can totally use the label correctly and in different contexts and it could still be a stage one. But I think how I see it, it's more so that they might totally understand it as its own isolated word. They obviously know that this label represents this animal, but until they're really in the stage three mindset of seeing it as a building block, they are not going to use it to build grammar. So I think it's more so once they're in stage three, their brains shift to seeing these single words as building blocks that they can now combine together and use. Yeah. Yeah. So for kids that have hundreds of word labels, but they're not using them, once they get to stage three, then they're going to be able to use those. It's not like they have to start from scratch and pull all of these single word labels out. The ones that they have, they will be able to now combine with or over time combine with. Yeah, I see it as more of a brain switch that now they're really seeing it as a a building block, but that's just my own interpretation after working with a lot of these kids. But that's super cool. Okay. That's helpful. So let's talk about then some of the later stages. And I will say I even get confused on these because I've been so focused on stages one through three. What is, it goes to six, right? Four, five, six. Yeah. Once they're in stage four, it's all It's all the grammar stages. It's just five and six are more and more complex grammar. 
But yeah, once they're in stage four, they're really combining these isolated single words and adding other grammatical pieces, verbs, ing, past tense. They're really learning these grammatical elements. And it's at this point very similar to how an analytic processor learns grammar. We still want to very much model it naturally, just like we did in stage one. We're still just embedding it into play and into our language, but it's really looking at these individual grammar pieces that they're perhaps missing and trying to be really repetitive with them and embed them a lot. Yeah, That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And then basically it's just increasing in complexity as they move from one stage to the next. Yep. Yeah. So there's a few, there's a couple charts that your therapist might reference and that are referenced in the the courses for Gestalt processors, the dynamic sentence analysis chart and the dynamic sentence types chart, which basically details in order from less complex to more complex, these grammatical pieces. So it starts with articles like it, this, that, and ing Mm -hmm. verbs, and it goes more and more complex from there. So once your child's ready for that grammar input, you can really start at the top of the chart, see what pieces they have and what pieces they're missing and try to model those pieces that they're missing and then go from there until they have all the pieces that they need. That's really Okay. Awesome. All right. I know I've picked your brain so much today. So thank you for sharing all of this. Anything else be about Gestalt language processing you want to make sure to mention? And then we'll also wrap up with you sharing some of your information. I talked a lot about the methods, but I think an important piece is just to emphasize that Stage one through stage four should all be very child-led, open modeling. We're never expecting imitation. We're never rewarding the kid for imitating. It's very much just offering what we think they might want to say and, yeah, and really allowing for that to happen naturally over time. But, yeah. Yeah, awesome. It was great. to. It was fun to to share. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit, where can people connect with you? And I know you have a practice in Sacramento, California. So if they're in that area, but other ways that parents across the world can connect with you. Yeah. I'm Boho Speechy on Instagram and also on Facebook. It's where the majority of my info is held. So I offer parent coaching sessions. I will sometimes have seminars. I have a monthly parent meetup group all on zoom and all those links are in my instagram bio so yeah it's all housed there awesome yeah i know you just recently had one of those like monthly calls and yeah it's awesome that you offer that and help to educate parents i will say go to her social media. Like I am learning so much. And Katya, I'm just so grateful for you being here today, sharing all the information here, but also how much you provide to parents so that they can self-educate themselves as well. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you here next time. 
Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.